And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Continuing on from uh, last Sunday when we were looking at the uh, first part of uh, a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, we continue on today, and I want to start with a quote to kind of set the tone, a couple of quotes uh, to set the tone for this sermon. Here's a uh, quote from Ray Ortland Jr. Gospel is good news for bad people. Gospel is good news for bad people. This is in line with Jesus. When Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus uh, gives us health by calling us to repentance and faith in Him. Can we see the church as a place for sin-sick people who need the healing of Jesus? Can we see ourselves as people who still need the healing of Jesus? Especially when we're dealing with these sensitive matters, matters about the body and sexual immorality. I bring this up because in our reading from uh, 2 Corinthians 6, Paul's addressing this terrible spiritual sickness, this grave sin that's happening in the community there in Corinth, in the church at Corinth. Apparently, there were people in the church at Corinth who thought it was okay to visit prostitutes. They had been so influenced by the surrounding culture, everybody else was doing it, everybody had their reasons, their rationalization why it was okay. And so some of them had convinced themselves that this behavior was acceptable for Christians. Now, in Paul's response, he, he doesn't say, you know what, you're beyond the pale, uh, you've, you've crossed a line, you're, you're so sick, there's no hope for you. That's not how he treats this terrible and grave sin. Instead, he reminds the Christians of their identity in Christ. He reminds them of their dignity. He, he reminds them specifically of the dignity of the Christian body. How should we respond to the messages in, in our culture about sexuality in the body? This is a great passage to turn to and to think about, to meditate on. The profound teaching of the Apostle Paul here on the dignity of the Christian body and to do this in the Spirit of Christ who came to heal the sick and call sinners to repentance. Now, there may be some people here for whom this is not really a struggle, these issues that I'm going to be talking about or that I talked about last week, it's not really a live issue for you. 
But I think it's important for all of us, no matter how we're personally connected to some of these issues that we talked about last week and, and even today, to understand what we believe as Orthodox Christians about these things and why we believe what we believe. And this is a great passage to turn to. So I'm going to look at what Paul says here about the Christian body. He talks about the purpose of the Christian body. He talks about the destiny of the Christian body. And then he mentions several things that are related to why the Christian body is sacred. So we're going to look at those things together. First of all, the purpose of the Christian body. The body is for the Lord, he says at verse 13. The body is for the Lord. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, if you judge by popular music and movies and social media, many people today have a different view of the purpose of the body. Many people in our culture uh, seem to think that the purpose of the body is primarily as an instrument of pleasure. Sigmund Freud, this is an oversimplification, but <laughs> Sigmund Freud taught that Happiness is the purpose of life. Uh, pleasure will get you happiness. Therefore, sex is the central purpose of life. And there's a lot of people who have adopted this, this kind of thinking. Not blaming, it's not like they're reading Freud, but I'm saying this is an, an illustration of kind of the idea that many people are pursuing. What's the problem with a view like this? That the body is primarily an instrument of pleasure. What about sexual addiction? You give yourself over to pursuing pleasure. What about sexual addiction? I've heard that brain scans show that people who are addicted to pornography have the same response to pornography as a cocaine addict has to coke. It's... It's a drug. It can become a drug. And Paul understands this. The Apostle Paul understands this link between, uh, he doesn't use the term addiction. Today we would talk about addiction. He talks about being mastered by something here, doesn't he? Enslaved by something, something taking control. He understands this link between uh, sexual immorality and addiction. He says, I will not be mastered by anything. And so the message of our culture is often, you know what, you're free to do whatever you want in this area of life. If it, if it feels right to you, if it feels good for you, as long as you're not really hurting anybody, you're free to do whatever you want. But the addict isn't free. An addict is not free. And Christ offers freedom. John 8, when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Christ offers people freedom. So the scripture teaches that the purpose of life is not happiness as the world defines it. The purpose of our life is to glorify God and to enjoy him. Yes, there's happiness in that. True happiness, true freedom, true life. And so the purpose of the Christian body is to glorify the Lord with the body. And Paul tells us about the future of the Christian body. The destiny of the Christian body is resurrection. 
And God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power, the, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, this miraculous uh, death-defeating, life-giving power that raised Christ from the dead is going to raise us from the dead. Those who are united by faith in Christ share the victory that Christ has won over death. If somebody believes that after death, well, I just cease to exist, my body is going to disintegrate and that's it. You know, if somebody has that belief, well, you can see why they... They think it really doesn't matter what I do with my body in this life. It's just matter that's destined for dust. But Paul's saying, no, that, that's not how we think about the body. As Christians, we understand our body is destined for glorification, for resurrection. Jesus made this promise, didn't he? Several times in the Gospel of John. Here's just one promise Jesus makes. Jesus who, was di- who, who died and now is alive. Jesus says in John 6:40, everyone who looks on the Son of God and believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus connects us to the eternal life of God and he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says in John, there's coming a day when the Son of Man, he will call people out of the graves. Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians, he goes on in chapter 15 to talk about the resurrection of the body. And he says, that which was sown in dishonor will be raised in honor. That which was sown in weakness will be raised in power. And that's an uh, important thing for us to remember, especially as we feel our bodies aging and weakening as we go on through life. This body with its thinning hair, now I'm talking about myself, and uh, creaking knees, and (laughs) worsening memory. This same body that is growing weaker will be raised in power. That's the hope that we have as Christians. Maybe you know the quote by C.S. Lewis when he's talking about uh, glory and the relationship between Uh, the glory of God and the glory that God gives his people. And at one point in this sermon, the weight of glory, he says, remember the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to one day may become a creature. And if you saw this creature, you would be strongly tempted to worship it. Because it's in this, this person. He's talking about an ordinary Christian who's in a glorified state that God has promised his people. It would be so glorious that we might be tempted to fall on our knees. And so Paul's point here is, is, is how you use your body now, what you do with your body now, should correspond to this dignity that God has promised for you, this, this glorification, the dignity that you have now, and the glorification that is to come. You know, we, we, we talk about people um, who embody the dignity of their office. If they have a high office politically or in in another arena, as a pastor, for example, there should be a certain deportment, there should be a certain dignity about the person who occupies an office. 
And, and what Paul is, is getting at is, is, as Christians, all of us who are united to Christ, united to his body, have a dignity. And we should carry ourselves in line with that dignity. And the dignity that we will inherit at the resurrection. So, the, the purpose of the body is for the Lord. The future of the body is glorification. And then there's another element here that he talks about. Now, this is so central. Uh, this is central to his argument about why the Christian body is dignified and why we ought to live in a way that corresponds to this when he talks about how the Christian body is sacred. Now, it's not that the body in, its, in and of itself is sacred. We don't worship. There are people... Today, there are spiritualities today that worship the body, that, that look to the body as an object of worship. There are spiritualities today that are increasing in popularity that look to the body as a, as a vehicle to kind of uh, experience uh, transcendence. Uh, no, that's not what Paul is talking about. The body is a created thing. We don't worship creation. We worship the creator. But what Paul is talking about is our body as Christians is sacred because of the relationship that we have with God, what God has done, and how we are related to him. And it's not just, the effect is not just interior or spiritual. There's a connection we have with Christ, even linking us with him in our body. This is pretty profound stuff, and I'm not sure I can wrap my mind fully around it here. But if you just look at what Paul is saying, there's a, there's a richness here that I think oftentimes we can kind of gloss over about the significance, the sacredness of the Christian body. And so he begins to spell this out. There's these three things that he, he talks about with the Christian body that gives it great dignity and uh, puts it in the realm of the sacred. Not in the realm of the profane. Not in the realm of the ordinary. Puts it in the realm of consecrated to God. Okay? And, and here it is. Number one, our bodies are united to Christ's body. If we are united to Christ, he says, your body is united to Christ's body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of the body of Christ? And last week I brought this out. He, he says um, throughout his teaching about the church that those of us who are members of the church are members of the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we're all members of his body. Christ working through us in the body. We all have a role to play, but we're members of the body of Christ by virtue of our membership in the church. He is the head of the church. We're united to Christ that way. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 10 to talk about when we participate in Holy Communion, when we participate in taking the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, as we would say as Anglicans, the spiritual food of the body and blood of Christ, it is connecting us to Christ in a very profound way if we participate rightly. And, and so he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 
Do you not know that the cup we drink is a partaking of the blood of Christ? Do you not know that the bread we eat is a partaking, a koinonia, a fellowship? It is uniting you to Christ. And in the context there in 1 Corinthians 10 is he's been talking about things like sexual immorality and he's been talking about idolatry and he's saying you are united to Christ in a very deep way by virtue of your participation in the sacraments. And so Paul makes the application here in 1 Corinthians 6. The presenting issue is that there were some people in the church who thought, hey, it's okay to visit a prostitute. And he's saying, if you, if, if in your body you're united to Christ, when you visit a prostitute, in a sense you are uniting a member of the body of Christ with a prostitute. You're profaning the body of Christ. Because of this deep union that's between Christ and the believer. There, there's a deep union that happens in these intimate acts, right? The, the, the two become one. He quotes Genesis 2. The two become one flesh. There's a deep unity that happens in this act of intimacy. Don't take your body that is one with Christ and unite it with a prostitute. It's profaning the body of Christ. So for a Christian to engage in prostitution is to profane Christ. For a Christian to engage in any kind of act of sexual immorality is to profane Christ. And so this this might sound a, a bit crass, but to kind of get the point across here, would you take Christ to a brothel? Would you take Christ to a strip club? Would you take Jesus along with you on a one-night stand? Or while you're engaged in an adulterous relationship? Would you invite Jesus to sit next to you and watch an explicit video? That's what a Christian is doing while engaging in these things because we're united to Christ. And so Paul says... You need to flee from sexual immorality. You need to run away from it. You need to understand the danger of this. How it's, it's not your identity. It's not what God has called you to. You, you need to run away from it. Flee from sexual immorality. You know, when you, unless you're a regular runner, most of us, we don't run unless we're in danger. <laughs> You know, when I'm out west hiking in Montana, if I see a bear, I thank God I've never encountered a bear up closely, but that's when I would flee. That's when I would start running, try to get up a tree, something like that. Um, if you're in a house and it's on fire, that's when you flee. Because it's dangerous, it's deadly. And that's what Paul is saying. Do not play around with this. Do not flirt around with this. You need to get out. You need to go away from it. Remember that Paul has already said that for those who are living a lifestyle of sexual immorality, they're going further and further away from God. And if they do not repent, if they do not feel any remorse, if they continue to do this without remorse or repentance, he says, those who practice sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, 
as I said last week, there's forgiveness for every sin except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There is a way back. There is a way back, and that way back is the mercy of God through repentance. And so we're grateful for that. But there's a warning here about the danger of sexual immorality and how it puts us in union with something that violates, that profanes the union we have with Christ. All other sins are outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his body. It's not that sexual immorality is a worse sin. Please hear me. It's not that sexual immorality is a worse sin in terms of the guilt that it puts us before God. All sin makes us guilty before God. And, and it's not that, and I've heard people who have wrestled with sexual sin talk about this, where they, they come to the realization that this is not the only thing that God wants to deal with in my life. This is not the, and, and, and some, for some people, it's not really the biggest thing. There's something underneath the sexual sin that needs to be dealt with. There's a brokenness, there's a search for identity, there's idolatry there. It, that's the presenting issue. Okay. So hear me when I say this is this all sin puts us uh, can separate us and does separate us from God. God forgives us of our sins as we come to Him in faith and repentance. And as far as the east is from the west, He removes these sins from us. But Paul does note that there's a difference here. There's a difference because sexual sin, he says, and again, this is one of those things where this is a bit of a head-scratcher. I'm not sure I've nailed this down. (laughs) Some of you might want to share your opinions with me on this. But he says, uh, sexual sin is a sin against the very body that's united to Christ. It involves a sin against the body. All other sins are against the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his body. Rather, All other sins are outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And one commentator tried to explain it like this. He said, other bodily sins like gluttony and drunkenness and those sorts of things, those come from outside of us. There are things outside there that we take in, but the sexual sin is something that arises from within. And and, and what is supposed to be uh, in that the core of who we are is the life-giving Spirit of God. And so we, we, can, we can wrestle with these things. We can, we can um, as we wrestle with these things, we look to the Spirit of God who dwells within us. He says the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the third thing that he says here um, that I want to point out about the body. The body is united to Christ. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the second thing, I'm sorry. The body is a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying something very novel in his context. That is, the temple is not a place you go to. If you're a Christian, the the Spirit of God dwells within you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this Spirit that dwells within us will help us as we wrestle with these things, as we look to the Spirit in prayer, as we look to the Spirit to shape our mind about these things through Scripture, as we come together in worship, the Spirit will strengthen us. Finally, uh, Paul gives another reason why the Christian body is sacred. He says, you've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. 
The price paid was the blood of Jesus at the cross. And so what Paul's alluding here to is the ransom price that would be paid for slaves. A slave in those days could save up enough money to buy their own freedom, to, to pay a ransom price, and they would redeem their own life. Or somebody else could pay a ransom price for a slave and set that slave free for a new way of life. And Paul is saying the price for you, Christian, to live a new life has been paid. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. He's given you a life of freedom. So live according to that life. There's a Lutheran pastor named Harold Sinkbile, and he, in one of his books, he talks about what it means to be consecrated, what it means to be sanctified. And he uses an analogy. He talks about Abraham's Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address. And uh, Lincoln, on that occasion, he said, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. We're not the ones dedicating, consecrating, or hallowing this ground. It's the brave men who died, who struggled here, who have consecrated it far above our power to add or detract. And what Lincoln was doing was he was reminding those who were gathered to dedicate that cemetery that the ground that they were assembled on was already hallowed. It was already made holy. It had been consecrated by the blood of soldiers who died in battle as they were fighting for what freedom would mean in our nation. And, and Harold Sinkbile, this Lutheran pastor, goes on. He says, Lincoln's words here echo scripture. We cannot make ourselves sacred. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot sanctify ourselves. The blood of Jesus has done this. The blood of Jesus has consecrated us. He's cleansed us from sin and he's consecrated us to live a new way of life. And what we're called to do is to live into this. To live out this identity that God has given us. We're called to help one another live into this identity. Others who are struggling, others who are questioning, so that we might glorify God in our bodies and give honor to Him. So I want to take a moment to pray and uh, lift up before the Lord, these things that we've talked about, and ask the Holy Spirit to apply them uh, to, to each and every one of us. Lord, I do thank you for this profound uh, teaching of the Apostle Paul. Um, it is, it is, it's profound. My, my teaching has not been profound, but this is profound. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to take the things that we have learned, that we have read, that we have pondered, and apply them to our life. I thank you that you are a God of forgiveness and healing. And as the psalmist said, if you were to mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness. And so I pray for anyone here who, who might be struggling with guilt and shame, that they would know that as they come to you, you're a God of forgiveness and healing and restoration. I pray for people who might be struggling with these kinds of things, that they would come out from uh, the shadows of guilt and shame into the light of the gospel and find somebody that they could talk to about these things. I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we, we would be a community 
that um, points people to the hope of the gospel in a time where there's so much confusion and brokenness over these things. And you would help us to walk in the identity you want for us at the cross. I ask it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.